Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. We're a network that exists to provide relationships and resources to amplify a Jesus-centered movement, and we seek to embody a more hopeful vision of following Jesus in our cultural moment. Join us as we learn from those who are looking to live out a greater Jesus centricity in their areas of leadership and mission. If you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome. Check us out on social media or at JesusCollective.com for ways you can connect to this growing movement. Okay, let's get into today's podcast. It is such a joy to be here. Um, among so many wonderful colleagues and friends and people. As everyone keeps saying this, it's so great to meet all of us. Um, And as you said, today, um, as Keith said, I was asked to speak about rooting our identity in Christ, in Jesus. And as I thought about our identity, uh, that term of our identity, I thought about the commonality that pretty much all of us in this room have. If I'd said, you know, stand if earlier, I think you all would have stood if I'd said stand if if you work in ministry. Many of us are pastors or we're teachers or we're church planters or we're leaders or working in administration. Whatever the case may be, when we talk about our identity for us, so much of it is connected to a call that we have felt on our lives. We are people who have been called, and this is part of who we are. And as I think about who we are, I really want to speak about that unique aspect of our identities that is present in this room. And I should say as I uh, begin that I am not going to say anything that every single one of you don't already know. I'm pretty confident about that. Uh, But the thing is, um, we forget. So I'm going to talk about what we know, but at least I know for me, I forget. Um, And what happens is we get kind of kicked in the call sometimes. And I want to tell you about a time just in my life, just as a pastor. I'm a pastor of church about 45 minutes from here. We have about two, 300 people. We're just doing our thing, right? And those, sometimes in those moments, those moments can just get you that kind of kick at you. And I had one a few months ago, uh, one that any of us in ministry in any form have probably had some version of. And I got an email from a gentleman in our church. He'd been attending for about a decade. I'll say his name was John. I'm just making up a name. And he uh, was emailing to explain why he was no longer coming back to the church, which often happens, of course, in ministry. Uh, But he was not, you know, doing the, you know, we're just kind of on different pages and it's okay, bless you, and God is good thing. The email was not like that at all. There was quite a lengthy list of the reasons we were not a church he wished to attend, uh, which included, but we're not limited to, uh, the fact that I had become too woke, that we cared too much about social justice, and my personal favorite, uh, that we had not declared that the Enneagram was satanic. So, I know, right? You can say it in this room. So, I mean, it's probably safe to say that I wasn't, like, upset he was leaving, per se. Uh, so I just because you probably get a bit of a vibe of this person. But there was a moment that really got to me. We have those moments that really get to us. And it was later, a couple days later. I mean, obviously, there's always grief when someone leaves and all those things. But there was this moment a couple days later when I was talking to one of our board members, like our elders, and he was, we were kind of debriefing this. And I made this comment that John had never actually talked to me classic, before he left to kind of talk about some of these things. And uh, this former said, oh, yeah, 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 you know, like I had been talking to John about this. And he explained that, you know, he hadn't gone to you because the two of you didn't have much of a relationship. And I was like, 
pardon? And he said, no, no, like, you don't need to feel bad about that. I'm not criticizing you. I know you can't know everybody. I totally get it. But, you know, he just said you've never really spent much time with them. And that was when I felt a little bit kicked in the call. That was the one that got me. Um, and so I had this moment, right, and I was like, really? I didn't say this to this person. My mind kept flooding back to all this time I'd spent with John over the deck. And I remembered, you know, being at his son's 13th birthday party because we were there as one of the family. A few years later, being called, rejigging a vacation to deal with the fact that his son had run away. I can remember doing premarital classes with him and his now wife. Tons of Bible studies lived together. I've been at tons of meals in his home. Guys, I know the names and ages of his kids and his dogs. Like, I know this guy. And so to be like, oh, we didn't spend time together. We didn't have a relationship. That's interesting. But what really got to me, funny enough, was a little bit unfair because it was one that he wouldn't remember. And so it had been a few years ago before this that he had had a surgery, just a minor surgery on his sinuses. He has a lot of health issues. And he hadn't been able to find anyone. His girlfriend had called me. She couldn't get time off work to sit with him in the recovery room. You're supposed to have someone with you in recovery. And they'd at, his girlfriend had asked if I could go and sit with him. And I was like, yeah, I'm free. I can go. And so for two hours, I was in this hospital, you know, this kind of ward. If you've ever had a small surgery where you wait, you know, it's kind of you're waking up. And I have to say it was one of the most uh, just vulnerable, intimate experiences in many ways that I've had because he was just in complete misery. His sur surgery had been on his sinuses, so he was just bleeding and bleeding and bleeding from his nose, and he was weeping because it was so painful. And for two hours, I was just going through towel after towel after towel as he just bled through them and cried through them. And I remember driving home the day, and I was like, ministry's weird, isn't it? Right? And I was like, yeah, that was a weird two hours. And so I just sat with John as he wept and just out. And I thought, but you know, God, that's what ministry's like sometimes. And there was a beauty in it too. And then the next day, quintessential ministry, I phoned him to see how he was doing. And he said, oh, my girlfriend said you were there yesterday, but I don't remember any of that. And I was like, oh, now that's ministry. <laughs> You know, and I was like, oh, yeah. and you know what? And I was okay. I never told anyone that story. Now, you get it. You get it now. And I was like, you know what? I think sometimes in ministry we have those moments where we're like, this is just me and God, and this is what we do. You know, we just hold these towels to these people, like bleeding out literally and figuratively, it feels like in front of us. But, you know, in that moment when he was like, well, we never had much of a relationship. It did, it, did, it did hurt a little bit, even though he didn't remember that. And I, I did feel this, this kick in the call, this kick in the identity, right? Because for me, a lot of my identity, truthfully, is I'm a good pastor. I mean, I try. You can ask my congregation, I guess. Don't ask him, apparently. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can do this. I can serve in this way. I've given my life over to doing this thing. And he pushed back on that. And the truth is that there's so many things that are pushing back on that identity that many of us have been called into, of pastoring or leading or whatever they be, right? There's so many uh, just kicks in the call in this era of life, of ministry in the world, right? We live in a century of like just kicking at the pastorate, it seems. We've lost our place in society, at least in Canada. Maybe in America, you guys are in a bit of a different place. No one is impressed 
that we're pastors anymore. You know, I actually don't tell people I'm a pastor right away. I don't want to freak them out. I don't know if you have that experience. Sometimes I joke that it would be easier to tell them I was a stripper. I was like, I think that would actually get less reaction than when I say I'm a pastor. Does anyone else feel that way? I'm not suggesting you do this. I'm like, it actually would, I think it would scare them less. It freaks them out. The only person that calls me reverend anymore are people calling the church asking for money, preach, or my mother on my birthday card each year when she mails it reverently and no one else calls. It's not an impressive title anymore. There are times people cared what we thought. You know, that's what the minister thinks. Let's ask them to speak. No, that's changed. And for many of us, that can be people. We might think, well, you know, we're smart. We've got education. We're capable. We have things to offer. And we just have done this thing that a lot of people don't even understand what it is, or they desperately don't like what it is. And a lot of our brothers and sisters in ministry haven't made that much easier on us, certainly not in recent days. And sometimes it's hard too, uh, because, you know, we have like a, a pandemic, and it shakes every way we did ministry. And that kicks us in the call too, right? And we're like, well, how do I do this thing anymore, right? All of a sudden I'm not preaching or I'm not visiting or I'm not doing so many of the things that I thought ministry was and all our foundations were sort of shaken. There's so many things that these can happen that shake us in ministry. And sometimes it's a congregant or someone we work with or serve, whatever your, con whatever your context may be, that you've worked really hard to pastor, even though, they're not always easy to pastor and they can leave after a decade and say, well, we never actually had a relationship anyway. And so today I was thinking about how we respond in those moments, you know, what sort of the norm responses are, or what our go-to response would be, or even our cultural responses when our identity is challenged. And this doesn't just apply to our pastoral identity. And I went through all of them in this particular scenario. Um, and the first response, and I do have it on the slide up here, I think we're going to see four. We'll see if it, uh, it appears. I sent slide. If not, it doesn't matter. I can just read them. The first response that we often have when someone pushes back on us, right? So the person calls says, you didn't do a good job, or you didn't, you know, you messed this up, is to go, you know what? They're totally right. They're 100% right. That was my first response, right? Initially, it was like, well, maybe I didn't call him enough over the last two years. You know, I think I called this house a few times. Sometimes I talked to his wife and not him. Oh, you know what? Probably I just didn't, I didn't actually do a good enough job and I've blown it. We do that. And then sometimes, uh, then I went the other way, which you've already heard me do, which is they are definitely wrong. They are absolutely wrong. We want to prove ourselves. We want to prove who we are. We want to prove how right we can be. And I think the third thing we can do is we start playing the comparison game. You know, I'm not going to come off great here, right? But this is true. One goes, well, I'd like to see him find another pastor who's going to put up with the stuff I've put up with the last decade. <laughs> Let's see how it goes for you. Let's see how many Enneagram meetings you're going to have about something you never actually teach in the church ever. And let's, you know, like, let's see how they feel. Let's see if they'll hold the towel for two hours. See how that works out for you. And then there's, a, you know, the the really tough one, and that's just self-pity, despair, right? And for me, my self-pity looked like, why do I do this job? Why am I doing this for? I've spent so much time with this man in the last decade, and you know what kept running through my mind? I thought, what a waste of time. 
What a waste of time this was. So many meetings about things he, you know, had strong feelings about. So many discussions. So many times I was just trying so hard to be patient. Not just these dramatic, painful moments, but day in and day out. What a waste of time. And all these responses make sense, I think. The tricky thing is they're not really effective. And I, I want to speak about that. So the first one, if you remember I mentioned, is when we have those moments when our identity is challenged, right? Is to say... Um, that, the, you know, to say they're all right, that that's absolutely true. And the reason that I don't think that's very effective is just say, yeah, they've said it, it's bad, so it must be true, it's bad, that's all there is to it, um, is that we then find our identity in what other people are saying about us, right? And that's so common in our world. And I think uh, David Zell spoke to that so well this morning. Other people say I'm bad, so I'm bad, right? I'm the image I betray. If I don't get enough likes, that means it was not good. In a cancel culture, we cease to exist without people's approval, right? And the reason this is tricky is it can mislead us. Even in this room, if I went around, every single one of you will have something different to say about what I've already said. So if you take that story I said about John, some of you are sitting there and you're like, she is such a good pastor. Thank you. <laughs> and some of you are like, doesn't she have like a care team or some deacons or something? Why is she at a hospital doing this? This is the problem with pastors. They don't focus on vision. They, get, they waste time. And some of you are like, well, that was a subtle humble brag. Oh, you know, I'm just telling you now, but actually doesn't this make me look really great inside? And you're all, all of you would think something different. And the thing why that's tricky is all of you'd be right and all of you'd be wrong. You'd all be a little bit right and you'd all be a little bit wrong. And none of it would be the fullness of who I was, which is why it's so tricky. And so to find my identity, what you say would be we dangerous, right? It would actually be dangerous and ineffective. I had a pastor when I first started preaching as I was a youth pastor. And I remember after one of my first sermons, we were in one of those churches where you'd stand out by the door at the end, you'd all like process out and then you'd stand and shake all the hands. Maybe you have churches like that. You know, everyone's saying, lovely, thank you, thank you. And the next day I said to him, I don't know what I'm supposed to say when people thank me for a sermon. I was very spiritual. I said, you know, I just want to say, you know, glory be to God. You know, it's not my sermon. And so which is fair enough. And uh, he said, uh, you know, Leanne, that, that's a great point. He said, but let me tell you this. You know, if you have prepared that sermon and you have spent the time in prayer and you have sought God and you've done the research and you get up and you truly say what you feel God had for you to say and someone says, you know, thank you for that, you can say, yeah, glory to God. Thank you. So, but you know, the next week, if you've spent the time in prayer and you've sought God and you've done all the research and you stand at the door and then they shake your hand and they say, I didn't like that sermon at all, Pastor. And you can still say, glory be to God. Then you know it wasn't actually about you. That was very interesting. <laughs> because sometimes when someone says it's bad, then we're like, well, that must be the truth. So that's why it's tricky if we say, well, they're all right. They've got it right. This person said something bad and they must be true. They must be right. And then the second one I said is to go, well, they're all wrong. You know, I was a great pastor to you, and I was not a perfect pastor to him. And that's tricky because, again, we've already heard this theme today. It came up, it's appeared, yay. Um, they're totally wrong. It wasn't that fancy, I know. I know, maybe oversold what was coming here. But they, uh, to say, like, they're totally wrong is then to say, well, it's about our ability to do enough right? If I just get to this marker, then I'll be able to prove the wrong. So, you know, John, let me show you all the visits we've had. Let me show you, and then you'll have to admit I pastored you well, but that never works. 
And you all know this, right? And I could probably tell a thousand stories and so could you. But the one that came to my mind this week was years ago. I just started at the church. There was a woman whose husband passed away and I went to visit her a ton. She lived really near my house. I was a really young pastor. I'd been raised with a strong theology of the pastoral visit. And for a few years, I saw her almost weekly, I would say. Our church was very tiny at the time. And then I went on a parental leave. And in Canada, that's a year. Good times. And so uh, I wasn't really able to go see her as much. For my first child, I still went. Then I had two, and it was hard. So we get to the end of this parental leave. I'm close to it. And a woman uh, from our care team, which we do have a team like that, calls me. And she says, uh, her name was this woman who was um, visited. His name was Joan. She says, uh, Leanne, I'm sorry to tell you this, but, you know, Joan, she was, I knew she was ill. She had cancer for a long time. She said, uh, Joan doesn't want you to come see her, and she's adamant that you can't do her funeral because you never come to visit her. And once, well, that was another kick in the call, right? And I was like, what are you talking about? I have literally probably visited her still to this day more than anyone else in the church. Not to her. Now, the funny thing is, there's another woman that, uh, this is the contrast I was thinking about, named Jane, and she'd come and her husband to the church just for about a year, and he mostly came on his own when he got sick suddenly and died. I was there when he died, and then I did the service, you know, the things we do, and that year, she didn't really ever kind of come back to church, but I called her maybe like three times, and to this day, anytime I run into her in the city, she'll cry and say, thank you so much for how much you called me when my husband died. There's no logic to it, right? This one woman I probably visited a hundred times and someone else I called her thrice, literally. And she's like, you did so much for me. So if I'm waiting for this, and you all have those stories, right? If you're waiting for this gauge, you just never, ever get there. I can't compare myself to others. It just doesn't work. And that's why this next one, this comparison game is so tricky. When we start saying, well, if I'm better than someone else, I want to tell you who's a better pastor than me the woman that was the pastor in my church before me. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm about to freak you out. So I start, she'd been the pastor for eight years or so. And I did, I started at the church actually 17 years ago. I think of an old bio, so it's been a long time. I was 27 when I started. And so I did what I was taught in seminary, which was like, take, maybe we were taught this, I was, take all your, take all the meeting minutes out and like read the last year and learn what's going on. And so she had to like write, give a report to the deacons each month. And the month before she left, like I was reading these minutes, one of the months, this was just a normal month, she had done 144 pastoral visits. I don't even know how she does that. Does anyone have it? I was like, how am I going to do this? I found out later she counted phone calls. Because math, my word, I couldn't even figure it out. So I was so intimidated. She was an amazing visitor. Joe might have been happy with her. I couldn't even measure up to her. <laughs> and I can't compare myself to so many others. Uh, neither will any of us, right? Someone will always have more followers. And we might say, well, why do they get asked to speak at events and I don't? Why do they get the book deal and I didn't? There's always someone who'll outshine you. There's always someone who'll outsaint you. You'll have a great service and then you'll go to the ministerial the next day and the other pastor will be like, oh my gosh, like we're just like running out of chairs and we don't know what to do. Like, could you pray for us? It's such a burden. And you have these moments, right, where you just can't quite keep up. And so we do end up with that defeat and that despair, right? No one sees what I do. What a waste of time. 
This all is. I know some of you are in church where you don't do this, but, you know, I'm still every Sunday morning picking up the coffee cups on sun, you know, straightening chairs, putting things away. Visiting people that maybe don't care so much, holding towels up to people's noses. And you think, this is tough. No one sees it. Why do I do any of this? Who am I at all? Why does any of this matter? Um, because these are such hard things. And, and even though we know they aren't true, right? Uh, the thing is we forget. We forget. As I said, they're all reasonable responses, but I'm going to invite us to a fifth, and I bet you can guess what it is. It's rooting our identity in Jesus, which is why this is such an important, this is such an important corrective to these temptations. Jesus is our identity giver, and an identity challenger. He is the giver of our true identity and the challenger of our false identities. And there's so many examples I could pick. There's so many ways Jesus gives identity when we, we look towards him, right? I think of him calling, right at the beginning, he calls out, you know, these people who are fishing. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of people. I see who you are, right? I think even in that moment when he's talking to people and his mother and siblings come to like, Come get out of here. And he says, well, these are, my, these are my family now. These are my brothers and my sisters and my mother, right? This is my family now. And he gives them this new identity, invites them into his story. When he looks at, you know, Simon Peter and says, uh, actually, you know, you're a rock. Let me, let me tell you who you are. He sees this intrinsic value. And like I said, we all know all this, but we forget. And he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground outside your sparrow's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. You're so valuable because of who you are and not what you do or who you're better than or what others think. And then he challenges us when we get to thinking that way. I love that story because, well, I love and hate it, right? When James and John are like, Jesus, we have a super great idea. Here's what we were thinking. We'll sit on your right and you're left, right? And, and I, I resonate with this story because I can hear myself in it so easily, right? Where I'm like, you know what, Jesus? I just want someone to see me. And James and John think they've got there, right? Like, we are like your special close friends. We're in the top three, so this makes a lot of sense. And we have these moments where that, that's what I want, at least me, maybe it's just me, where I'm, I just want to be seen. I'm just saying, Jesus, can you just see what I've done? and what I want, and, and who I am, and that, and that I want to be just, I'm not asking for, I'm not asking for the seat. Like, they probably thought they were doing great. We just want to sit next to you, just next to you. And he says, oh, you don't even know what you're asking. <laughs> you remember that response? He's like, you don't understand how the kingdom works. He's like, I mean, you, you actually are going to do all the things I'm doing, right? You, can you go with me? And they're like, yeah, we can. He's like, they're like, yeah. He's like, yeah, you are. You're all going to die. You're going to die with me. It's not for me to give right or left. And I think about Jesus saying that to me in those moments where I'm like, you know, see me, notice me, let make people get it. And he's like, you know what? You, oh, Leanne, you don't understand what you're asking. I think I do. Um, I know, but I forget, right? And to each of those ways that we want to find our identity or push back when our identity is pushed at it, when our call is kicked at, when people are kicking at the call, I see how Jesus responds to that, right? That first one, we don't matter, they're all right. When people say, when the world looks at us and say, pastoring, what's that? Do you only work Sundays? What do you do the rest of the week? 
What do you do with your life? Why does this matter? Why does this count? Your role doesn't have a place. I think of all the ways Jesus says, no, I see you. One of my very, probably my, in fact, my very favorite story from scripture is when Jesus heals the woman with the bleeding. There's so much I love about that story, right? But it, it starts with Jairus, and there's this man who's like, hello, come and heal my daughter. And he, we know his name, and he's important, and he stands up in the crowd, and he needs Jesus. He does. It's wonderful. And as he's on the way to the home, you've got this contrast of this woman who literally crawls to Jesus, right? She's not standing up saying, help me, please. She's never been taught she can do that. And so we know that because she was bleeding for, I'm just assuming you know these stories, although she's been bleeding for 12 years, so she's been unclean for 12 years, she's been outside of her culture, her society, her religion for 12 years, she literally crawls to Jesus, and Jesus says, like, who touched me? Notice, you ever preach that where Jesus is mad, which doesn't make any sense? He's not mad. Like, two minutes later, he's like, I want to meet you. Someone touch me. I want to meet you. With all the crowd waiting for this important thing, he stops. He says, who touched me? He says, she comes trembling with fear. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. We know this, right? We know, but we forget. We know this story. And he looks at this woman who's been outside of the story of Israel in so many ways, couldn't participate in religion, couldn't engage in so many things. And he says, you're still a daughter. You're a daughter of Israel. I see you. I know you. We've forgotten her name but you are a daughter. doesn't matter what other people say, what they think the right definition of you is. Who I see is what matters. And so when we get to, and then I think of that other side when we want to say, well, they're all wrong. I'm so important. I matter so much. Give me back my place in society. You should care about what I have to say. I think of Jesus who never felt a need to prove himself based on what others saw, right? People would leave and he'd be like, you want to go too? I would have been like, please come back. Like, let's have a coffee and talk about it. Um, I think of him standing before Pilate. And every year, you know, I get to let and I read this. And I'm like, wow. Pilate's like, are you the king of the Jews? He says, you say I am. <laughs> That's it. He gets to Herod. He does nothing. He says nothing. And then he's hanging on the cross. And this criminal next to him is like, oh, yeah, if you're the Messiah, why don't you save others? Save, save us. Save yourself. Save us, us too while you're at it, Jesus says. Nothing to him stays on the cross. I'm so constantly amazed by this Jesus who does not need to prove who he is because he just says over and over, I, I came to do the work of my father. And this is the work and this is what I'm doing. I'm so busy trying to prove to everyone that I'm doing the work of the father that I just miss doing the work sometimes. And then when we want to compare ourselves. You know, I'm better than this pastor. I'm better what this person could be, or I do better than this other thing. I remember that moment when Jesus is walking with Peter after he's risen from the dead, right? And he's like, feed my lambs, feed my lambs. And that passage always speaks to me. I've heard that call too, right? And then Peter, who I feel a bit of a connection to, I admit, he says, um, well, what about him, right? Like with John behind him. Jesus is like, well, if I want him to stay alive until I come back, what's that got to do with you, right? And so often I want to do that. What about him? What about her? What about them? What about how much better I'm doing them? What do you expect of them? And Jesus is like, what's that got to do with you? I'm here with you right now. Your call. You feed my lambs. And then when I get to this place of self-pity, where we are, right? No one sees. No one sees what I do. No one gets it. And you know what? No one does. 
There will be so much of your job and your ministry that no one will know about. You will not get to subtly drop the story in in front of 150 pastors in a few years. <laughs> Most of what you do, people don't see or don't get and don't remember. And then, you know, you know where, you know what I'm going to, because you know, we just forget, right? When Jesus says, well, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And I remember, well, was I doing it for Jesus? You know, I have a, my associate pastor, it's actually a problem. I, I love her very much. Um, she thinks I'm so funny, which is not good for me at all. And uh, so I often do, and it's so true that if she's out there, if I make a joke and she laughs, nobody else can laugh. I'm like, no problem. Leslie laughed, nailed it. And I will keep going. Like I only, and I have a couple friends like that in my life. I'm like, it's not always ideal. The whole congregation's blanking. They're not with me at all, but I just keep going. And so I think about that, like, so sometimes that idea that like, oh, I just need you to see it. But that's actually what I should be doing with Christ, <laughs> with the jokes. But this audience of one, right, I'm doing it for you. And that's actually a really beautiful thing. Jesus says, yeah, whatever you did, you did it for me, for me. Not just the stuff that gets the acclaim and not just even that stuff that, you know, we feel maybe guilty. We don't do enough in pastoral ministry, the feeding of the poor, the giving of the money, what it looks like when Jesus says, well, when you picked up that coffee cup, you picked it up for me. When you cleaned the fridge in the kitchen, you cleaned it for me. You held the towel for me. We know, uh, but we forget. And we do this because of the way Jesus made us, because of that identity he put in us, which is founded in a call. And I remember I had a professor who always described our call as the call to step into the fire when everyone else is running away. Now, you know what I'm saying, right? What he means like, oh, the house is on fire. And my guess is everyone in this room is like, the house is on fire, got to go. And we're like this way, where everyone else is like, we got to run away from the fire, right? But we're like, no, we see a problem. We see a need. We see people's longing to know something about who they are. We see their need for Christ, and we walk towards it. We walk into the pain. And that's not actually typical. That's a call. That has to come from Christ. And I think all of us have been made in that way. We maybe serve in different ways, but what we're doing is stepping into the fire. And it comes out so many ways in our lives. Years ago, my husband and I and three of our friends were just driving back from, we, we were in Niagara Falls, which is, you guys aren't all from here, so it's that way. And uh, we were driving back to Hamilton, which is about an hour away. And, they were, and it was uh, three pastors and two social workers, which I know sounds like the start of a bad joke in a car. And in front of us, we saw this car driving, and there's a man and a woman, clearly, and they were, like, hitting each other. Like, they were doing this, and, like, he reached out and kind of hit him, and we're like, <gasps> and so they get off on this exit that's nowhere near our exit, and in unison, we all go, follow that car, and we got off at the exit, and we followed that car for, like, 10 minutes. They pull over. They, they come out of their car. They're both very, very drunk. They picked each other, like, they they were going to hook up. They met somewhere, and then met, like, they changed their minds. That's a drama. And so like, our, like, the three women go to the woman, and the two men go to this man, and we like, help. And then, and then they, start, they drive away, and we follow them home. And I mean, it was, it was almost laughable. It was like this clown car of helping professions, right? It pulls over, and we just like tumble out. Like, here we all are. I think about these people after. Like, who are these people behind us all of a sudden? And it was so funny. We thought about it after. We're like, I want, and we were telling someone the story, and they're like, why did you follow the car? You guys would have followed the car, I think. <laughs> it's like, well, it didn't, I don't think it occurred to us not to follow the car. Right? So when everyone else was like, well, I was like, what would you have done? And my friend, they're like, I don't know. I just would have went home. I was like, oh, fascinating. 
That's so interesting. But see, there was something in us that was like, we need to follow the car. We're going, we go into the fire, and my guess is this is a room full of car followers. And it comes from Jesus. It comes from the Jesus um, who put this in us. And sometimes it's not always easy, right? I want to be like Paul in Romans and say, you know, like he's... He says, you know, I show the potter talk back and say, like, you know, God, you know, why say to the potter, why did you make me this way, right? And I want to say, God, why did you make me this way? Um, but then I see what a beautiful thing it is because as much as I've been joking, this is a beautiful calling. And it was a beautiful moment to get to be in this vulnerable moment with this man, even as it was bloody and messy and ugly. Jesus was there, and that was amazing. And we steward this call, as Cheryl said yesterday. We live out what Jesus has put in us, the Jesus who said, come and follow me, which means lay down your life so you can find it. And he says, I've got a life for you. You're going to lay down all the things that you think this job is and this calling is and that your identity is, which is that we root our identity in Jesus so that even when it gets kicked at, uh, we still know who we are in him. For Christmas, uh, we bought our daughter this like punching bag toy thing, and you fill the bottom with water. And you know, no matter how much you hit that punching bag, you, it comes back, you can't knock it over because the water keeps the base strong. And I was thinking about that as that image of what it is to have our identity in Jesus. We are going to get punched and kicked at over and over in intentional and unintentional and subtle, sometimes very painful ways. But to be rooted in Jesus is when that water is like at the base of the punching bag, right? It stands up. It's still there. It's still strong because that's what it can't be blown away in the wind. It can't be taken away. I mean, and we know this, but we forget. And we forget when people say, you know, um, the truth is your call is complicated and tiring and it's not always appreciated. Um, it's beautiful. And you own, people say you only work on Sundays, but you know, Jesus sees us Monday to Saturday. And what you do doesn't matter, but we know Jesus loves us. This is a waste of time, and nothing is wasted in God's kingdom. Or if they say, we never really had a relationship. Jesus says, uh, you're mine. I'm his. So my prayer today is that we would remember what we sometimes forget. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com where you can find more resources and upcoming events, learn about getting involved through partnership, and donate so we can keep offering content like this and engage more people and churches around the world. We'd also love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and feedback. You can drop us a message on social media or email us at connect at JesusCollective.com. Until next time.